Hey, everybody. Did you know the Passionate Health Advocate Show now has video? That's right. We now have a YouTube channel where you can listen and watch our latest episodes. Subscribe to the Passionate Health Advocate Show YouTube channel to stay up to date with our program. Frustrated with your pain or injury? That sucks, but I'm here to help. Hi, my name is Denise DeShutler and I'm a body worker and educator. Why is it so hard to find the care we need to feel better? Most of my clients have asked that question for years until we started working together. Now I'm gonna help you find those answers. I'll explore different health disciplines and chat with talented practitioners. We'll share our insights and practical advice to help you get the results you need to feel good again. Because seeking the right care for your health can be a pain in the arse. But with me, your wellness journey will turn into a fun-filled adventure. Buckle up, baby, for the Passionate Health Advocate Show. Happy New Year! Thanks, listeners, for joining us for 2022. Today we are going to a place that can balance your gut health and stop symptoms such as chronic bloating, heartburn, and acid reflux. Let's buckle up. Welcome to the land of digestive health. We are searching for Norm Robillard, PhD, founder of Digestive Health Institute. Is that you? That is me. Thanks for having me, Denise. You're very welcome, Dr. Norm. I'm so happy that you're going to show us to this land of digestive health, mainly because I have to say a lot of listeners ask me about this topic mm. all the time. People want to know what's going on, what to eat, uh, what to do with their digestion. Mm. And so thank you for being a guide and helping us travel this land uh, healthy. Mm. Healthy digestion. My best. <laughs> So um, let me ask you, uh, how did you get, how did you get to this focus? How did you get to this land? Mm. Yeah, it was some years ago. I, I, my background is microbiology. And so I um, uh, joined some companies, pharma biotech, uh, worked uh, for years developing medications. And um, along the way, I came down with a case of chronic acid reflux myself. And I was just miserable with it for years. And, and so my own industry didn't really have answers that were very good for me. And um, so I was just struggling with it. Um, I just happened to go on a low-carb diet with one of my sons. This was about 2004. And it was just to lose some weight, get a treadmill, get in shape. But I had no idea what was coming within a few days of being on this diet, my, my GERD, gastroesophageal reflux disease, dramatically improved. And I was just really stunned I, because I wasn't expecting it. I didn't know anything about it. And, and most other people didn't either. Of course, when I looked online, other people were saying, wow, cut carbs and my, my acid reflux, um, these symptoms got a lot better. And um, it could have stopped there, but I became very curious about why, what, what is the involvement of carbohydrates in acid reflux? And I uh, started reading about it. 
and thinking about how carbohydrates fit in the equation, because the prevailing theory for some 70 years before was that there was a dysfunction, a dysfunction of these sphincter muscles at the top of the stomach. And that was all there is to it. And everybody accepted it. But carbohydrates didn't fit into that picture. So I started researching how the three food groups, carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, how they how they go through the digestive tract and what happens along the way. And it just, I think it was a stroke of luck that I was a microbiologist that I had worked on intestinal microorganisms. I'd worked on Bacteroides fragilis when I was a postdoctoral fellow in Boston. I had worked on strains of E. coli and a number of these intestinal microbes. And I knew that most of these, right, and we have a, a thousand different species and a hundred trillion of these microbes in our gut for reasons we can talk about later, all these good reasons. But uh, I knew two things about them is that most of these strains prefer carbohydrates as fuel and they produce a lot of gas. And right then, a theory just popped into my head that perhaps I was on an eat anything diet that included a lot of pasta, a lot of carbohydrates, that I maybe I was overwhelming my digestion. And instead of those carbohydrates going into my bloodstream, they were persisting in my intestines and feeding blooms of gas producing bacteria. And that gas pressure builds up and pushes, it translates into the stomach. And, and it's well known that intragastric pressure is higher in people that have GERD. And then eventually the pressure builds up enough and it pushes its way through the sphincter driving reflux. So there's a new way of looking at it. And as I started looking into this further, trying to figure out what was wrong with what I was thinking, how, you know, maybe I was wrong. It turns out there was a lot of evidence supporting this idea so that I, you know, and started writing some books on it, of course. And, um, and then I ended up that eventually led to me developing, developing the fast tracked diet. Um, this is a book on heartburn, uh, fast track digestion, heartburn, fast track digestion, IBS. And then there's a fast track diet mobile app for implementing, making it easy to implement the diet. So, but that all started with just kind of a simple observation, right? I've seen a lot of your um, uh, podcasts and talking about listening to your body. And that's really what I was doing. It started out with that direct observation, what I was experiencing and everything the last 17 or 18 years has just come from that. Wow. So, and now I'm in digestive health. <laughs> Congratulations on getting there. That started mm -hmm. in 2004 and it's now, right now it's 2021. So yeah, it's crazy. congrats. Well, I have to say, um, yes, congratulations. And also it is unique that that happened to you because, you know, yes, you were listening to your body and you also had a whole past of, of putting it together logically for you to do that research an observation for yourself and the research to, to lead you on this new path. Because I know in my personal experience or people I know, especially at that time, um, anything with digestive health was just, there was no common knowledge about it, mm. you know, and it felt very limiting. So the fact that mm. unfortunately you had to go down that route, but to take you to more of a fine point of leading you to digestive health. Cause I feel that a lot of people are at a loss with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so because the the, the, these problems are quite common. Yeah. I mean, we talked about gastroesophageal reflux disease. It impacts 60 million people just in the US. So imagine worldwide, irritable bowel syndrome, IBS, 50 million people. And those are just two. There's many other related um, 
functional GI issues, and even systemic issues that are related to these problems. So there's a lot of people suffering with this, and um, and it is hard because there's conflicting messaging out there. Definitely, definitely. And that's why I'm glad we're at this land to help people clarify what's going mm-hmm. on and maybe what they're dealing with. I feel that um, a lot of people, I mean, I feel anybody listening right now or watching uh, could probably raise their hand. Oh, I have heartburn. I feel mm-hmm. like that's very, very common. And then they may not understand where the heartburn's coming from, or even is what they're feeling heartburn. They just mm-hmm. classify it as heartburn. So what would you say for people listening, watching, um, where to start? Like, how would they know they are mm. even actually having issues with GI? Mm. Mm. Right. Well, there will almost certainly be symptoms involved, right? And mm-hmm. so for these functional GI issues, irritable bowel syndrome, um, bloating, abdominal pain, cramps, altered bowel habits, these symptoms are very common. And there's many others. I mean, in, in a worst case scenario, you can talk about weight loss and easy bruising and, you know, you can be there, they can be more significant and more serious for gastroesophageal reflux. You have belching. You can also have a lot of the IBS symptoms because there's a 50% overlap between IBS and GERD, Mm. a huge overlap. A lot of people with half of the people with IBS have reflux issues. Half the people with reflux issues have, um, IBS. And that was one of the reasons that kind of helped solidify my idea that bacterial overgrowth in the intestines was responsible for GERD because Mark Pemintel at Cedar sinai in LA and other researchers had already been making that connection between IBS and small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, in other words, dysbiosis and, and IBS. So it made sense. So when pe- where do people start? with these symptoms. So we talked about IBS with reflux, belching, you you can get the bloating and those symptoms, but then heartburn, that burning pain right behind the breastbone, that's right above the lower esophageal sphincter. So when, when acid and bile and other components from the stomach are refluxing out of the stomach, the esophagus, that tissue is sensitive, doesn't have the protection, the thick mucus that's in the stomach. So people feel that burning. There's a whole other group of people that have one thing it's called as silent reflux. It's also known as laryngopharyngeal reflux, where reflux gets up to the throat and the vocal cords, and it can even get into your eustachian tubes and your sinuses. You can aspirate it into your lungs. There's a strong connection between reflux and asthma. As many as 80% of kids with asthma have reflux. So, um, and, and then what to do about it, right? Well, of course, you want to try to understand it. But um, just in my introduction, I said a lot right there. It, there's no question in my mind that what's driving these conditions, um, well, there's many potential underlying root causes as well. But, but the overwhelming driver, I really believe, is carbohydrate malabsorption too many of these gas producing bacteria. So they can give you, they can give you altered bowel habits. Hydrogen has been linked to diarrhea. Microbes in our gut produce hydrogen. Methane is produced by these archaea type organisms in our gut, and that can slow transit and lead to constipation. And the jury's still out on hydrogen sulfide, but we know there's these sulfate reducing bacteria in our gut that produce a lot of hydrogen sulfide. And so you have if you have pathological amounts of these gases, you're going to have a variety of symptoms. You can be tested 
um, there is breath testing that can be done to tell you how much of these gases you have and potentially where they are in the digestive tract. Are they early in your small intestine or are they later in the large bowel? So um, that's something that, that can be done too. It's called lactulose hydrogen methane hydrogen sulfide breath test is now a company that does all three gases. Mm, okay. So if somebody is listening, thinking, okay, I really would like to know what's mm. going on. If they were to choose to take this test, how yeah. would they find it? Well, the one, the new one, and again, a lot of these things get back to the research of Dr. Pemintel's group at Cedars-Sinai helped develop this, but the test is called TRIOSMOD. Now, um, with some breath tests, especially the older ones that just do the hydrogen and the methane, you can buy them direct online, but you can't get the lactulose sugar. And that's what's preferred because you can buy the kits online that have glucose as the detection sugar. But the problem with glucose is you want a sugar that you're going to consume and it's going to travel through your digestive tract, stimulating these microbes that can ferment it to produce gas. But if you use glucose, glucose is very rapidly absorbed in the early part of the digestive tract. So you would miss a lot of signals that were later on in even the small intestine. So lactulose is like a fiber. It's not digestible by humans, but microbes can ferment it. And so to take this test, your doctor would have to prescribe it because lactulose is technically, in most states, I believe, a prescription laxative. So because it's a prescription, the doctor would have to order the test. Um, and then TrioSmart or another company, if you didn't want, if you didn't need the hydrogen sulfide included, they send you the kit at home and it has all these tubes in it and it has the sugar solution. And so what you do is, you know, best to label all the tubes, you know, time zero, one, two, three, four. And you, some, some kits use a straw, different ways that at time zero, before you drink the sh sugar solution, you would blow into the time zero tube and then put a cap on it, set it aside. And then you wait, depending on the test, between 15 and 20 minutes between tubes. And then, but after that zero time point tube, then you drink the sugar solution. And now that's starting to work its way through your stomach, into your small intestine. And then every 15 minutes, you would blow in a new tube, put the cover on. And you do this for about two, two and a half hours. And then you send the tubes back in and they're analyzed and they'll send the results to you and your doctor and so forth. Um, or somebody like me, if you were working with me, they can send the results to me too. But what you're trying to figure out is where is this lactulose sugar? How soon is it being fermented by bacteria? And for most people, the general time it will take for the sugar to get through your small intestine is about 90 minutes. So if you get these peaks of hydrogen or other gases earlier than 90 minutes, there is a distinct possibility that this activity is occurring in your small intestine and that, and that you would likely be diagnosed with SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, however, if you're methane positive, a lot of people that are methane positive the sugar solution won't really do that much. They're already making methane from other either carbohydrates in their diet that the bacteria are fermenting or mucin molecules that, that 
comprise mucus that lines our gut. That's also a fuel source for microbes. It's 80% sugar and it's got sulfur and, and nitrogen groups. It's a complete food source for microbes. So that can be fermented by bacteria and the methanogens can turn that hydrogen from those microbes, from your own mucus into methane. So if you have high methane levels, it, the time course is not as important, you, but you can be diagnosed with an overgrowth of these intestinal methanogens. They call it IMO, intestinal methanogen overgrowth. Um, so it doesn't really, the timing doesn't matter as much for the methane. And again, the hydrogen sulfide is very new, so there's a lot of data being collected on that right now. Uh, at any rate, though, you can share these results with somebody that kind of understands how it works and figure out what to do from there. Um, that was going to be my question for you, because it yeah. seems pretty uh, innovative, right? I don't know how, how long these tests have been around. So if people are listening and they want to mm -hmm. take the test, then who should they work with? They get the results, and then they have no idea yeah. Yeah. what to do with these results. Who do you recommend for them yeah. to, to work with? Well, I mean, I would recommend myself, because I do this all of the time. I mean, I work with people that get these tests all of the time. Another test that's very, um, I believe is very actionable and very insightful is these comprehensive stool analyses. It's a different way of looking at things. It's not necessarily focused in on the small intestine because it's a poop sample. Mm -hmm. And these you can order online and you send it back to the company um, GI effects test by Genova is a good one. There's other ones. It's quite a competitive uh, space. Uh, and you send these stool samples back in and you'll get back. And if you were working with me, I would see this um, uh, very detailed report that would enlighten you about any pathogens that might be in your digestive tract, um, you know, bacterial pathogens, um, H. pylori, C. diff, depending on, you know, some of these things are optional that you can add to the kit. Um, a whole variety of parasites, viruses, fungi, but also a breakdown of your entire commensal population, right? We haven't talked about that too much, but there's these thousand species, a hundred trillion microbes, and you've got mostly bacteria, but these other microbes as well. And they do all of these amazing things for the body. They ferment carbohydrates. And we were talking about too many carbohydrates in my case, over fermenting too much gas and reflux, right? Yes. But in a healthy person or younger person in particular, that's healthy. Uh, we're very efficient at digesting carbohydrates and fats and proteins, but some of these, all three food groups will escape digestion. And these microbes in our gut will ferment them in a healthy way. And, and this is why the reason we've evolved to have these complex ecosystems in our gut, like other animals, is because they can process the fibers and other carbohydrates and some proteins and fats that we don't digest, they convert this fuel into something called short-chain fatty acids, right? So they're fats, and they have energy, and they can nourish us. So they can nourish our cells. So it's a survival advantage to have these microbes back in paleolithic times because there may be times we didn't have a lot of food and we had to um, eat roots and different vegetables that we might not digest well, but the microbes would make the fats and that would help us survive. They also regulate bile levels, regulate appetite. Um, they regulate fat storage. 
Um, they block access to the binding sites in our gut for all these different pathogens that might come in. So all these great things they do. Well, this stool test will tell you all about these populations. You know, there's about seven or eight different phyla or high-level groupings of these microbes. Um, Firmicutes, Bacteroidetes, those are the big ones because those two are 90% of our gut microbes. There's archaea. We talked about the methane-producing microbes. Um, there's, um, and, and these firmicutes, by the way, they, uh, or firmicutes, most people call it, uh, include bacillus and clostridia. And so uh, lactic acid bacteria, a lot of the probiotics. So those are those firmicutes. The bacteroidetes are also very diverse. The proteobacteria, they have the E. coli, the Klebsiella, the serratia. So um, all of those groups are important, but some by the numbers at least are more highly represented. Um, we have actinobacteria that includes the bifidobacteria um, and on and on. So this, this test would give you a breakdown of microbes within these groupings. And then it would give you a ratio of the firmicutes to bacteroidetes. And that's important because 90% of our microbes are in these two groups. And so when this ratio shifts, it's important. Studies have shown, uh, studies in IBS and obesity and epilepsy have shown that the gut population tend to be shifted with too many of these firmicutes over the bacteroidetes. And super low-carb diets from a number of studies show that it kind of shifts back to the healthy controls where the bacteroidetes are increased. So that's just one example of how when you see things are very actionable. A new world now that we're starting to see um, this type of availability. So yes. it's exciting, you know, in the stool test, I mean, on and on, undigested fats, undigested fibers. I mean, it, it just, there's so much information in, in these tests that honestly, if I had to pick, I would pick a stool test over a breath test. Yeah. And I, I'm both. glad you brought that up. The stool test. I mean, it sounds like for people listening, um, you know, you're, because, you know, that's very complex. The average person probably doesn't know about all of those microbes. But what you're explaining is that you're trying to balance the gut health. Exactly. And seeing the stool sample will give you an idea where things are out of balance. And I think people having symptoms, they may, you know, WebMD and try to figure out what's wrong with them, but not really have an idea. And then under the assumption of having something that they think is wrong with them and then pursuing to work with someone that may follow that line versus getting an actual test, which I think is super important. So I'm yep. glad you brought up the stool test and I'm glad you brought up that once you get that information, you know how you can work with people. Oh yeah, it's the passionate health advocate, Dance Break. Now get up and shake your thing. test, you know, from the patients that you work with, um, what would be an example of how you would work with them, how to help them get a better balance in their gut biome? Right, right. Well, I did talk to you about some of those things, right? That things yeah. you see in the stool test will lead you in a different direction. And right. then you have to rule out things. Um, okay. So basically, when I when I work with someone, um, and I don't have patients, I have clients, I'm a consulting microbiologist. 
Okay. That's what I do. They Thank sign a consent form <laughs> to work with me. I send them extensive reports and they can share those reports with their own doctor or anybody else they see. Um, but yes, I'm, I'm a uh, consulting microbiologist. Um, when I work with people, I, I try to spend about 20 minutes with them right up front on the phone, just to find out what's going on. Is it something I can even help with? And if I feel it is, and I take them on, I don't take on that many clients because um, it's labor intensive on the back end. I'll meet with somebody for an hour, but I might work on the report for three hours. So it's a time consuming process. So I'll take on, you know, five appointments a week, maybe, because I spend a lot of time working um, on the back end. Uh, but so I talk to people for 20 minutes, and then I'll also have them fill out a three page questionnaire. They, you know, of course, the basic information, their age, their height, their weight, um, any other pre-existing conditions, a whole, you know, a list of their symptoms and problems, supplements they might take. Um, have they been on antibiotics recently? Um, what's their diet like? Um, it, it just goes on and on. It gives me a lot of information. What What are their stools like? Are they constipated? Do they have loose stools? Are the stools, no, stools normal? What other tests have they already had done? Because that might be helpful right off the bat to look at what they've had done. And then in our first actual session, we'll, we'll do it on Zoom like this, um, but we'll typically go for 45 minutes, oftentimes for an hour, sometimes for an hour and 15 or an hour and a half, depending on how complicated their case seems. So really try to get just a good start between this questionnaire and really interviewing people and their history and, and digging into the symptoms in, in particular, uh, because you can, you can learn a lot from that. And then um, this first set of notes, I'll, I'll kind of everything we know. And then I'll also risk, I'll also list what I believe are the potentially most significant possible risk factors. That's the way we work with kind of a risk assessment for these underlying causes. You hear a lot about a lot of people in the, in, in the gut health world um, uh, saying, well, I, you know, I, uh, I'm on a diet, but um, like even my own diet, I created this fast track diet, which quantitatively limits lactose, fructose, resistant starch, fibers, and sugar alcohols, those five groups um, my own research has identified those. It's also supported by um, the textbook of primary and acute care medicine, um, the European NICE guidelines that look at Cochrane reviews and all these studies. They flag the same five carbs as what people with functional gut issues should be limiting. So that's what we focus on in the fast track diet. Um, and it also has a behavior, uh, uh, a root cause analysis piece in these books and in the mobile app and in my consultation program. It's always these three tiers, cutting these five types of carbs quantitatively using this kind of FP calculation. Maybe we can talk about later if we have time. The root cause analysis, ruling out most that aren't the problem, and then addressing the ones that, that may very well be the problem. And then there's pro-digestion behaviors and practices. But the point I was driving at is in this fast-track diet, we do discriminate between resistant starch it's like a fiber. It's hard to digest. It's the amylose we talked about and some other forms of starch that make them physically more resistant. And then amylopectin is actually an easy to digest starch. And there's a reason we know this, because if you look at, uh, say, sushi rice, 
which genetically has no amylose. It's 100% amylopectin, 100% easy to digest starch. The glycemic index of Asian sticky rice or sushi rice is over 90, which means it's very quickly broken down to glucose and absorbed. Whereas something like basmati rice that has a lot more of the amylose, the resistant starch, the glycemic index is in the 50s. So in terms of blood sugar, right, the sushi rice will raise your blood sugar faster. So don't, don't have too much. But in terms of gut issues, the lower GI means they have a higher fermentation potential, this FP calculation, and more apt to trigger gut issues. But to get back to that original point, there are some people that, um, because we have a Facebook group, Fast Track Diet Facebook group of 12,000 people on there. Some people will come on and say, I've tried the diet, everything's working okay, but you know what? I still have trouble with um, some of these starches, even the ones that are higher in the amylopectin, the sushi rice, the red potatoes, having a little trouble with them too. Well, what would make what would give you trouble with those if you had a deficiency in your brush border enzymes? Because mm, okay. even the easy to digest starch, you may have trouble with if you have issues there. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So let me ask you, if uh, people are choosing to do this diet, now would you say this diet is for anybody or starting mm. off with people that have symptoms and this mm-hmm. is something you'd recommend and then there's a protocol to go through the diet? How do you, how do you guide yeah. people yeah. to one, even to start to take the diet? And then what's the process through the diet? Right. right. Well, you know, unlike just a, a very low carbohydrate diet or a ketogenic diet, we, we didn't go in that direction either, because even though I think that's a healthy diet, some of those uh, diet versions have very high fiber food. And for people with these gut issues, we didn't want them to really start eating too much fiber at first. Um, so who would it be for? Well, Anybody with these, um, with IBS, um, acid reflux, LPR, a whole variety of um, functional GI issues, functional bloating, functional constipation, um, you know, uh, there's just a, a wide variety. And there are the, and all of these conditions are linked to these forms of dysbiosis. SIBO, CFO is the fungal version of that. LIBO, overgrowth in your large bowel. IMO intestinal methanogen overgrowth, all of these forms of dysbiosis all depend on kind of a molecular food chain, starting with mostly carbohydrates. Most of the energy comes in there and then bacteria will make lactate and other microbe will take the lactate and make propionate and so forth. And there's a fuel chain. And then the archaea will make the methane from the hydrogen, the sulfate reducing bacteria will make hydrogen sulfide from the hydrogen. So we're intervening in this food chain. So anybody that has these types of dysbioses, um, and, and there's a lot of other conditions linked to these functional GI issues, rosacea, uh, interstitial cystitis, um, uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, many, many more. They're, they're even linking you know, Parkinson's to, to SIBO and a, wow. a whole variety of other conditions. So if it, if it ties back to dysbiosis or ties back to a functional GI issue, then I do think this approach will be helpful with these three pillars, limiting these five carbs quantitatively to get things under control, a real powerful effort to get at 
the potential underlying or contributing causes and rule out the ones that don't matter. Mm-hmm. Get rid of them, rule them out, focus on the ones that do matter. And then these behaviors and practices, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people want to just take something or eat something. What, where's my superfood that would make me feel better? Where's what vitamin should I do? What probiotic, what prebiotic, what, what can I eat? What can I take? It's so yeah. easy to take a pill. And I think that's why the pharmaceutical companies are so successful because it's easy, right? Mm-hmm. But when I work with people and it comes through in my work and the books and the mobile app too, is that, you know, no, 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 no. What I found in these 17 years is less is more. There's, there's also a big push, I think, that bends people's minds about we're starving our microbes. You may have heard that. We're starving our microbiota. Some studies in mice and some observational studies suggest, oh, maybe some more fiber is good and we don't get enough fiber. But when you measure, when you measure fermentable material with this FP calculation, that's like a reverse of the glycemic index, it shows that in the typical day on a Western diet, instead of having you know 12 grams of fiber, when we really should be having 26 grams of fiber or 36 grams of fiber, forget about all that because when you measure the, the total amount of fermentable material, you get a more like 100 to 30 to 150 grams of fermentable material. So I'm saying, stop. We're overfeeding. Now, people that have no health issues, no functional GI issues, they, don't, they won't have a hard time for me. They can eat whatever they want. I don't care. But people like me that are susceptible to these conditions and may not be digesting the things they're consuming very well, less is more. And, and I really believe we're overfeeding them. And that's why they're making too much gas. They're out of balance. And so we have to eat less. We have to use meal spacing. There's something called the migrating motor complex that moves things through our digestive tract. And it, every time we eat, we interrupt that. So we want that to complete a cycle, and it takes five hours. One when you sleep, and maybe one more during the day would be good if you can just drink water for five hours or a little tea. So intermittent fasting is another thing. Um, and it turns out the more this is looked into, um, read Jason Fung's work, just amazing the healthier it seems to be. Of course, within reason, you have to make sure you don't have liver or kidney problems. And and you have to be careful how you do it and how you refeed. The idea is not to starve yourself. You're just eating in different eating windows. Um, Yes, I'm glad you brought that up. Because uh, we've we've definitely talked about intermittent fasting here. And I think like anything, it's a getting the proper guidance to do any Mm. of these things, because we really don't know what's going on. So having the proper guidance. And so for you, which is, if people are thinking about probably pursuing this, yeah, is this like changing into a new lifestyle? Is it leading them to a new lifestyle or habit? Right. And that's why I wanted to touch on lactose intolerance, because remember this, this middle piece is getting to these root causes. If your main problem was you consumed a lot of dairy and you're lactose intolerant, then just either avoiding lactose or taking a lactase supplement. And so you might be kind of good to go. So it depends on what you find when you work with somebody, how much of a diet they can return to. Um, But I mean, I think, for most people, including myself, uh, it is a bit of a new normal. And that over time, if you take care of your digestive tract and you do these things that we're talking about in the fast track diet book, 
um, you your digestion should absolutely improve. You're really putting focusing on it in so many different ways. You're looking at the microbes, and now there's some opportunities with probiotics to address those, and also um, other things. For instance, pomegranate extract seems to be there's some data saying it's helpful with that. I commend some acinophilibug. Um, so there's all these thing, interventions, things we're doing to improve your digestion. Should it should improve, and your diet should become a little more flexible. But unlike a lot of other people and a lot of other diet approaches, in the fast track diet and in my own microbiology practice, I don't push people to jump right back in and start eating a lot of fiber and half. You need your legumes and you need to have more carbs and carbs are essential. They're not essential. There's no nutritional requirement for carbohydrates. So I feel very comfortable if somebody is getting a good mix of animal-based foods and some lower carb or lower FP, if you want to split hairs with the FP calculation, um, fruits and vegetables. There's not a ton of fruits you can eat a lot of on this diet, but there are a couple. You can use lemon and lime juice, um, watermelon, uh, cantaloupe. Some people can tolerate some servings of that. Um, but that I let people gradually start to reintroduce things. I don't rush it. I just don't think there's any reason to it because I just don't, I think it's a fallacy that we need this huge amounts of plants and vegetables and fruits. I just don't buy into it. Okay. That will definitely open up a lot of people's minds thinking, what, what's he talking about? But no, it's, it's, it's good that you are presenting this again, opening our minds to how this could be beneficial. And let me ask you if, if people are doing this, you've, Obviously, you've treated a lot of people with the fast-track diet. What are you finding the results for people that you've treated with this diet? Mm. Yeah, well, um, so first of all, they don't have to take my word for it. They can read um, you know, there's reviews on Amazon. There's reviews and, and testimonials on our website. They can talk to the, you know, these 12,000 people on our fast-track diet official Facebook group. Um, but I will say that we are having very good success with it. Um, and, you know, the books, the first book was released around 2013. So it's been out. And then the other one was released a little bit later, but five to seven years. Um, so we're not as big as the FODMAP diet in terms of scientists all over the world studying it. Um, but where we are in a clinical study in Chicago, 90 people with reflux that have to get off PPIs, um, that's, that's ongoing. Um, so we, we know it's up to us to pr present and publish some information and we're, we're working towards that, but you know, it costs money. So we, we're getting there. Um, people I work with, uh, have a very high success rate. Um, just keep in mind, we deal with people with, um, a number of different chronic conditions. Some can be more serious than others. There are some people I will work with them only in collaboration with their own doctor, um, I worked with someone that had uh, pouchitis after having a colonectomy for ulcerative colitis. And that um, this condition is an inflammation in the pouch that's made out of the small intestine. Very complicated condition. So some of them are more complicated than others. I'd say the biggest thing overall for the functional GI issues, the, the heartburn, the bloating, the IBS, nausea, constipation, diarrhea. The biggest issue is um, compliance. 
So we're going to drill in. We're going to get to the bottom of this. But if you have some kind of food addiction and you really, uh, you know, can't, you, you struggle changing your diet, um, most people are able to make changes. Some people do struggle with that a little bit, that that can be an impediment. Um, people on a plant-based diet, it's going to be more challenging because that's where most of the carbs are. Um, but there are things you can do. I do work with uh, vegetarians here and there, um, but we focus more on the root cause. We focus on the behaviors. We focus on the supplementation and we vo focus on how they're eating and we focus which, okay, you're on a plant-based diet, but which plants in a way a vegetarian would probably benefit most from having the fast track diet mobile app because it lists this FP value for 1200 different foods. And a lot of those uh, are plants. And so FP is a measurement in grams of fermentable material in anything you eat. How much of those carbs that are in this pear or in this piece of toast are going to persist in your intestines longer than glucose. It's mm -hmm. a reverse of the glycemic index. And it's a measurement in grams. So they can use the Fast Track Diet app. Uh, in fact, you can make meals with it. You can just drag the, the foods from, from the food lists. And, and then you just say what the serving is. Okay, I'm going to do a half cup of this. Boom. It will tell, tell you already what the values are, how many ZFP points. And change it. Okay, I'll go two tablespoons instead. It will automatically change it. You make all your meals up, and it will track all of your points. And it will track your symptoms. You can enter all of your symptoms, even custom symptoms. If they're not on the app, you can list custom symptoms. And it will track on a weekly or monthly view your symptoms every day. Oh. And then your FP points. So you can see, are these going together? If they're not going together, something's really wrong. There might be some serious underlying cause. But oftentimes, they will be going together. And you can, I can see in these days, I have a lot of symptoms I'm going to need to reduce some of the fermentable material in my diet. Wow. That app sounds really amazing. Yeah. I think when I talk with people, I think that's also the frustration. They may get, um, you know, a protocol to follow from someone, yeah. a practitioner, dietitian, what have you, but to have something where it's more of their control mm. and they have the access to do that on a daily basis. I think that sounds really helpful for a lot of people. So yeah. If people want to try the fast track diet with you, do they need to read the books and get the app or what's the best way for them to get started? Yeah. Well, I do think the, if you really want the nitty gritty, if you want the explanation and all of the details about how the diet works, I do think the books are essential and this fast track digestion, heartburn and fast track digestion, IBS. So those, okay. That was the two books. Can you say that again? Books. Yeah. Fast tracked digestion, okay. heartburn fast tracked digestion, IBS. Okay. And it's you can get same, those, where can you get diet, those books? But one's really focused on IBS and all the details of IBS. One's focused on reflux. Um, those are the two books. You get them on Amazon. You can get them at digestivehealthinstitute.org. Um, also, we can make an appointment to talk to me um, at digestivehealthinstitute.org. And then the fast track diet mobile app, there's links to the app on digestivehealthinstitute.org, but where you'll be taken is the Apple store or the Google store. You buy them there. Got it. Okay. That's great. And then um, that's, that's really good. And it sounds like even out of the United States, people can participate in this fast track diet with Absolutely. those. Absolutely. Those A lot of our consultation is with people that are 
that are uh, either in Canada or Europe, Australia. So nice. Yeah, it's amazing. Zoom is amazing. <laughs> Zoom, Zoom is amazing. Yes. Also, come with support. It sounds like you have a Facebook group. So, what you know, I like yeah. the idea of the app where people can track on by themselves, and that's really helpful. Yeah. Do they have support if they have questions going through this diet? Yeah. Well, there there are a number of places. I I do think the Fast Track Diet official Facebook group is one good place to go. You've got all those members. Um, so there's quite a dialogue going on at all times there. Um, I jump on there when I get a chance here and there. There is um, a pretty extensive Q&A for the diet that's published on uh, digestivehealthinstitute.org. And you can navigate there pretty quickly, I think, with the, with the menu. Um, but that Q&A has a lot of... Um, we did that for about two years. We took a lot of questions that people had and we put together answers and... Um, that's a pretty good little Q&A. So there's nice. that. <laughs> That's great. Well, Dr. Norm, this has been fantastic. I love that, you know, you had the opportunity to go in deep, whether you wanted to or not, but it seems like that path brought you to a way to not only help yourself, but to also help so many people, because I do feel like gut health is ever changing rapidly and everyone eats. So, so many people are affected by this. So the fact that you are showing the way to, digestive health is is really great so thank you for taking mm -hmm. us to this land and giving us uh, wonderful resources that people can try i really appreciate it yeah my pleasure and thank you for having me i enjoyed it thanks for joining the passionate health advocate show with your host denise de shetler like what you hear then subscribe rate and review this podcast